President Biden bracing himself for a major part of his agenda to die on the Senate floor. The lead starts right now. A showdown in the U.S. Senate just minutes away with the Democrats' sweeping election reform bill likely to fail a key vote. Are there really not 10 Republicans willing to cross the aisle just to start debating this? The shot clock winding down. The U.S. on pace to miss President Biden's 4th of July vaccination goal. So now, to mix sports metaphors, Biden is moving the goalposts. Dr. Anthony Fauci will join us live. Plus, Kim Jong-un's sister taking a swipe at the U.S., the new warning from nuclear North Korea. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our politics lead and one of President Biden's top priorities, about to die an ugly death on the floor of the U.S. Senate. In the next hour, the Senate is set to vote to advance a sweeping election reform bill, the so-called For the People Act. The bill would, among other things, make Election Day a public holiday. It would expand early voting to at least 15 consecutive days. It would ban partisan gerrymandering. Some of the other more controversial measures include expanding public financing of campaigns, requiring many states to overhaul their voting machines. Tonight's vote is nearly guaranteed to fail because as of now, zero Republicans support the legislation, though we should point out this is not a vote to pass the legislation today. It's just a vote to open debate on the act and begin amendments. Are there really not? 10 Republicans who are willing to at least discuss and debate this legislation. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon predicted on CNN today that he thinks at least a few Republicans might vote with Democrats. But perhaps he's being naive. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us on Capitol Hill. Ryan, this afternoon, Democrats were able to get West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin on board with today's vote. What do we know about the legislation and the negotiations? Well, this was an important step for Democrats, no doubt, Jake, because even without those 10 Republicans who are likely uh, to block this measure from moving forward, they didn't even have 50 Democrats on board with moving the legislation forward. That changed after a breakthrough in negotiations this afternoon. And essentially what Manchin has agreed to is allowing the motion to proceed and then have a vote on a separate amendment should the legislation make it to that next stage. The problem is it's unlikely to get to that stage because there is just no indication that there are 10 Republicans willing to continue this debate. In fact, this is a, a piece of uh, policy where you see a sharp divide between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Democrats believe that this issue of voting rights is fundamental to the core of American democracy, where Republicans feel exactly the opposite. They believe that states should be able to conduct their elections any way they see fit. Uh, and as a result, we are at an impasse here, Jake. Uh, Democrats want want to see something happen here. Republicans aren't interested at all. That is why it's very likely when the votes are cast later this evening that this bill is going nowhere. Democratic Senator Merkley, as I mentioned, he seems to think that a few Republicans might vote with Democrats tonight on just opening the process of debate and amendments. Are there any indications that might happen? 
The short answer to that is no, Jake. Uh, we know of no Republican that plans to vote to proceed uh, with this motion, to allow the legislation to move forward. Uh, if there is one, they certainly aren't raising their hands and saying that they want to be a part of this process. And even if there is one or two wayward Republicans, and to be clear, we don't think there are any, there is not the 10 necessary to keep this legislation from moving forward. So while Senator Manchin, other Democrats have had conversations with Republicans, they've just not been able to crack uh, that group that is very much entrenched in preventing this legislation from moving forward. Jake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. From Capitol Hill, the fight is not over. That's the message from the White House today, which seems to acknowledge that this key Senate vote, vote is doomed to fail. Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying that making it easier for Americans to vote will be a priority for the entire Biden presidency. And she says they will use every lever of government moving forward to try to expand ballot access, but the White House has also not laid out any specific plans at all about what might come next, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. The White House bracing for defeat. This fight is not over. Uh, No matter the outcome today, it is going to continue. President Biden's top aides vowing to push ahead as a Democratic-led voting rights bill heads for a Republican roadblock. It will be a fight of his presidency long past today. Last month, the president predicted that June would be a month of action on Capitol Hill and pledged to advocate for the For the People Act. I'm going to fight like heck with every tool at my disposal for its passage. Now, as the bill is expected to fail, the White House is framing it as a symbolic victory, not a legislative one. And he will continue to use the bully pulpit, but also every lever in government to continue to advocate for moving forward. Press Secretary Jen Psaki suggesting the loss could spur Democrats to rethink the filibuster, which requires 60 votes to pass any legislation, even though Senator Joe Manchin has made his opposition clear. I'm not willing to destroy my government, no. Senator Kirsten Sinema reiterating hers today, writing in the Washington Post that it's no secret I oppose eliminating the Senate's 60-vote threshold, warning if we eliminate it, we will lose much more than we gain. Biden assigned Vice President Kamala Harris to lead the charge on voting rights, but despite calls and meetings with advocates, she hasn't taken concrete steps on the matter. What the president and what the vice president will do is engage with voting rights groups, engage with legislatures who are supportive of expanding access. Some progressives say neither Biden nor Harris has been forceful enough. He's not absent, but he needs to be a lot more vocal and a lot more out front. The White House pushing back on Congressman Jamal Bowman. Those words are a fight against the wrong opponent. I would say that's hardly being silent. Uh, that's hardly sitting on the back bench. Uh, and we are, he will be standing with advocates in this fight for the foreseeable future. Now, Jake, Vice President Harris was on Capitol Hill earlier today to cast a tie-breaking vote to get a nominee confirmed, but we are now being told by a White House official that she's expected to stay up there and in a rare move preside over the Senate as this drama is going to happen tonight, even though the White House knows, believes they know what the outcome of this is going to be, that it's going to fail. It seems that they are going to be trying to send a message by having Harris up there on the Hill. So sending that message while we do expect to get a message from President Biden after this is expected to fail later today, commenting on it all. Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Joining us now to discuss, Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. Um, Senator, uh, let me uh, get a reaction from you to the news that uh, that Caitlin just mentioned, that uh, Vice President Harris is actually going to be presiding over the Senate in her position as president of the Senate uh, for this vote. Um, That's not 
a normal situation. Uh, it is obviously seems to be symbolic. Um, what do you take from it? It is symbolic, but it is a powerful symbol of the White House's engagement and of the importance of this vote. It's only an opening round, as you well know. It's a vote to move forward and debate. That is, just talk about the bill. The Republicans are going to be unanimous in shutting down the debate, but it is profoundly important to access to the ballot, overcoming the restrictions that state legislatures are imposing, and ending the corruption of our present campaign finance system. And that's why her presence is going to be really important. Well, Senator, if you know that it's going to fail, why put it up for a vote? Why not work to find 10 Republicans who will vote for something and get something passed as opposed to putting up a bill that you know is doomed? That's exactly what we are going to do. But we're giving them the first choice about whether to support this bill, which is our best option. Senator Manchin has proposed another version, which I would support. It has the essentials here and we'll move forward with that one. And then the conversation will continue. But make no mistake, Jake, we are by no means done at the end of today. It is just the beginning. And the American people should understand what's at stake here. Truly is preserving the right to vote and stopping billionaires, literally, from buying elections. And we are in no way going to abandon this fight. Well, I mean, Democrats control the White House, they control the House, they control the Senate. I mean, if, what are you talking about preventing billionaires from, from controlling politics? I mean, you, are, you guys control everything right now. We may have an evenly divided Senate and control because the vice president can break a tie. But the filibuster rules, as the American people are beginning to understand, require us to have 60 votes just to proceed to debate, just to talk about the bill. And that's why a lot of us, including many of our leaders, believe that we should tremendously modify the filibuster. I'm in favor of abolishing it. But in the meantime, we can mobilize support among the American people to understand that dark money, the money that goes to elections without disclosure, is determining the outcomes. And that's what we need disclosure to shine a light on. And that's why this bill is so important to end that kind of corruption. Senator, haven't you voted in favor of filibustering Republican legislation, not allowing them to even even proceed to a discussion and amendment process and debate on, on a bill? We have used the 60-vote threshold a number of times, for but you example. Just, but you're talking about it being corrupt, but you've used it too. The dark money is corrupt. The current finance system and its corruption is what we want to end. The filibuster is a rule that stymies majority vote. And I actually voted, I think it was my third or fourth vote in the Senate, 10 years ago when I first came here to abolish the filibuster. I was one of only 12. And in the 10 years since, I've seen my colleagues one by one decide that Republicans overuse, abuse, and misuse of the filibuster rule, that 60-vote threshold, has led them to conclude enough is enough. And that's why there are just a handful of Democrats left who are in favor of preserving this arcane and abhorrent rule that the founders 
would have absolutely rejected. So there are a number of Democrats who are not with you on getting rid of the filibuster. It's not just Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, but they are probably the most prominent. Um, Senator Sinema uh, wrote in a new op-ed, quote, the filibuster compels moderation and helps protect the country from wild swings between opposing policy polls. To those who want to eliminate the legislative filibuster to pass the For the People Act, I would ask, would it be good for our country if we did, only to see that legislation rescinded a few years from now and replaced, unquote? Does she not have a point? I mean, the 60-vote threshold is there to encourage compromise, and Democrats could very well be in the minority again very soon. There are two points there, Jake, and both of them are excellent to raise. Number one, yes, democracy could, if the majority in a few years or a decade or so from now requires a different vote on policy, reverse or modify health care policy or immigration policy, that's democracy, majority vote. And yes, the filibuster is sometimes understood to promote compromise, but Actually, it inhibits compromise because in order to reach a solution, let's say on voting rights, you need 10 Republicans, not just one or two, but 10 of them, which is a high threshold. So actually, it works against compromise. And my hope is that Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, like many of my colleagues, I've seen them one by one over these 10 years, come around in my point of view we need to abolish or radically reform the filibuster because it inhibits democracy, that they will reach that same conclusion and move forward on voting rights. And remember, we're talking here about a core right. It's not just a matter of policy. It's not just another bill. It goes to the core of people's access to democracy, polling places and polling hours limited the rights of access to absentee ballots and mail-in ballots restricted, gerrymandering promoted, dark money enabled. We're talking about essential democratic rights here. And I'm really hopeful that my two colleagues and others who may still have reservations about radically reforming or abolishing the filibuster will come around to the point of view this time is really different. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, thanks so much for your time today, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you. Why counting the votes in the critical New York City mayor's race could take longer than Friday traffic on the George Washington Bridge. And U.S. on pace to fall short of President Biden's 4th of July vaccine goal. But the White House is saying there is still much to celebrate. Dr. Anthony Fauci will join me ahead. Stay with us. In our politics lead, New Yorkers have just a few more hours to vote in the city's Democratic mayoral primary. But because the city is frankly so sclerotic when it comes to administering elections, it may take several weeks before we actually know who the winner is in this crowded field of 13 candidates. The city is rolling out a new ranked choice voting system, and that will also serve as a big test for this chaotic race. CNN's Athena Jones joins us now live from a New York polling site on the Upper West Side. Athena, what are voters telling you about this, this new voting system? Hi, Jake. Well, most voters we've talked to, we've been here since the polls opened at 6 a.m. this morning, off and on. 
These are voters who are excited to be participating in this election. It's being called the most significant election in New York City in a generation. You mentioned 13 Democrats running for the, for the nomination, but there are really four names that have risen to the top in recent weeks in the scant public polling we've seen. Those are Eric Adams, a former NYPD police captain, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner, Andrew Yang, a businessman who was a former presidential candidate, and Maya Wiley, a civil rights lawyer who was counsel to the current mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio. And those are the, the, the names we're hearing most from the voters we speak to around here. What's important here is what you mentioned, this idea that this is the first big test of ranked choice voting. New York City is the largest jurisdiction in the country to be using this method. They're using it for the first time. It allows voters to rank up to five candidates in order of preference. This allows for an instant runoff. That means that the lowest vote getter, if no one wins a majority or a majority plus one in the first round of voting, the lowest vote getter is eliminated, their votes reallocated to those voters' second choices. It sounds complicated. It could be a multi-round process. But speaking to voters here, they were excited about it. They didn't think it was confusing. Here's what a few of them had to say. It was easy. Um, I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. Was it confusing? Um, well, I don't think it was confusing. It did give me the chance to vote for a lot of women. You had to come prepared, knowing what rank you had, or you'd be there all day. Yeah, I made so, a list. But once you, did, once you have a list with you, it's not hard. So those voters were excited to be voting here and excited about ranked choice voting. And several I spoke to, including Ray McGuire, one of the candidates running for mayor, he came here earlier to vote. And I asked all of them, are they concerned about the fact that it's going to be a while, perhaps until mid-July, before we know who the final winner of this ranked choice voting tabulation is? And most of them said, that's fine. At least this way I get to have more of the say in the ultimate outcome. But I should tell you that the Board of Elections uh, does expect to be able to release the first choices of in-person and early votes tonight. That could give us some sense of whether any one of these candidates may have opened up a bit of a wide lead, uh, but we really are going to have to wait and see how this ranked tabulation uh, breaks down over the course of the next several weeks. You mentioned New York state uh, laws that govern when absentee ballots can be opened, when mail ballots can be counted. It's all part of why this is going to be a long process. We've really got to pack our patience here. All right, Athena Jones, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sticking with our politics lead, Democratic Senator from Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, facing questions about his family's membership in an elite, exclusive private beach club known as Bailey's Beach Club. There are accusations that the Newport Beach Club has only white members after a local news outlet questioned the senator about the club. CNN Sunland Sarfati has been reaching out to the club and the senator trying to get clear answers, which has not been easy. So Sunland, what did they say? Well, they really haven't said much. They are being very evasive here. I've had multiple short conversations with them over the last two days, and they point blank have not cleared up the reporting that is out there about their club. And they've even hung up on me multiple times. This is the total extent of what they have told me, quote, we are a private club, so I am not allowed to give out names of members or people associated with our club. I have no comment at this time. We have no comment at this time. And that is when they typically would hang up on me. Now, Senator Whitehouse responded yesterday to CNN when asked about the reports of his family's continued membership to this club. And he says, quote, the club informs the, me that it does, in fact, have diversity in membership. But when he was asked if he personally was aware of any diverse members of the club, the senator said, quote, I believe that there were. I don't spend a lot of time there, so I couldn't tell you who the members 
members are. Now, White House's office tells me that the club has no restrictive all-white policy and says that the club has had and has members of color. But importantly, they did not show us any evidence, Jake, that there are actually members of uh, color who are members at this club. These clubs, unfortunately, uh, clubs that have, you know, exclusionary practices don't necessarily always have exclusionary policies. Um, And Senator Whitehouse, we should point out, has built a reputation for himself fighting for uh, equal rights and, and, and diversity and progressive uh, civil rights uh, causes. That's right. He's a known progressive. This is someone who fights for diversity on a regular basis publicly. Uh, last week, he um, co-sponsored the Juneteenth bill, making it a federal holiday. Now, this week, the senator, in answering questions about this, he actually did defend the club as having a long tradition of being a family club. He has said that in the past, though, he would push for them to work on improving diversity, but he has not put forward any evidence of those conversations or push them to release the statistics of membership that he, of course, has cited in this statement. Yeah, and I didn't hear in any of the statements from the club or the senator just a a, a point-blank statement, the club has African-American members. No one has said that. That's right. They use words like diverse, non-white. Could clear it up. They haven't. Sunland, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Is the White House now moving the goalposts on a 4th of July vaccination target? I'm going to ask Dr. Anthony Fauci next. In our health lead, celebrating a missed deadline? That's what the White House appears to be doing, despite experts saying we will not meet President Biden's goal of 70% of adults with at least one shot. By July 4th, the White House is planning a 1,000-person celebration on that day to mark, quote, independence from the virus. And today, they're trotting out numbers other than the ones the president set as a benchmark to justify the pending balloons as CNN's Nick Valencia reports. The U.S. poised to fall short of the president's vaccination goal. So as to our goal of 70% for all adults, we're going to hit it for adults 27 and older. After weeks of pushing, President Joe Biden's July 4th aimed to get 70% of adults vaccinated with at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. The White House is moving the goalposts. The COVID response coordinator now claiming July 4th wasn't Biden's goal. It was an aspiration. We set 70% of adults as our aspirational target. And we have met or exceeded it for most of the adult population. This is a remarkable achievement. But that's not how the president has been describing it over the past few weeks. Our goal by July 4th is to have 70% of adult Americans at least one shot. Getting 70% of adults their first shot by July the 4th get to 70% of adult Americans vaccinated. Right now, according to the CDC, just over 65% of American adults have had at least one dose. Even incentives like free cars, free beer, and million-dollar lotto prizes were not enough to get more shots in arms. Now the White House is focusing on younger Americans, 18 to 26. Even if we do sail past the 70% goal, we're still going to be vaccinating people on July 5th, on July 7th, on July 10th. Currently, less than 2% of adults under 30 are getting vaccinated each week. The end game is to go well beyond that, beyond July 4th, into the summer and beyond, with the ultimate goal of crushing the outbreak completely in the United States. Meanwhile, the rapidly spreading Delta variant, first identified in India, remains. 
In Missouri, a healthcare CEO says they've seen a dramatic increase in hospitalizations as a result of the variant. Well, we, we've seen now uh, in four and a half weeks almost a six-fold increase in COVID patients. And we're seeing this sort of unexpected increase in cases. We'd never imagined this big of an increase. A stark reminder about the dangers of the virus for the unvaccinated. Still, some states are returning to pre-pandemic life. Our vaccinations are upwards of 61.2 percent. So we're really hitting this virus on a lot of fronts and we're in a stronger position now. In places like Georgia, there was never a grand reopening because things never really shut down, especially outside the city. Many carried on with their pre-pandemic lives. Now, though, Jake, as we're seeing a stronger push nationally to get younger Americans targeted, we are seeing events like here today at this popular brewery where they are hosting a pop-up vaccine event. Georgia ranks near the bottom in the nation when it comes to vaccinations. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Atlanta. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss the chief medical advisor to President Biden, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, good to see you as always. You said this about President Biden's 70 percent goal at the White House coronavirus briefing today. I want to play it for our, our viewers. That is not the goal line, nor is it the end game. The end game is to go well beyond that, beyond July 4th. So as you just heard with our last report, President Biden repeatedly called the 70 percent of American adults with at least one shot. He called it a goal. It sounds like the White House is kind of walking this goal messaging back a bit. You know, not necessarily, Jake. You set a goal. If you reach it, great. If you don't, you keep going to try and reach it and go beyond it. So I don't really see any, uh, to be honest with you, big deal here. We were trying for 70 percent of adults by July 4th. If you get to 67 or 68, you know, there's not that much statistical difference between the two, but you want to go beyond it. And that's what I said at the press conference today. Yeah, it was a goal, and we want to go beyond the goal. If you don't exactly meet it on July 4th, you don't stop. You just keep going, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and get as many more than 70% as we possibly can, particularly in light of the fact that we are now getting into the summer. We want to get things back to normal. Mm -hmm. The country is really striving and and craving to get back to normal. And we're going to be very much there by the summer. When exactly uh, do you think the U.S. will reach the goal of 70% of adults with at least one shot? You know, Jake, if you look at the rate now, it's probably going to be within the first couple of weeks of July, maybe the second or third week of July. And what is the reason why the U.S. was not able to reach that goal? Uh, Is it because of adults under 30? Because there is information suggesting that they are the big holdouts. They're the big reason. There's a poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation suggesting that in March, 26 percent of 18 to 29 year olds said they would only get the vaccine if required or they definitely would not get the vaccine. And that number uh, went to 24 percent in April, stayed 24 percent in May. It's it's uh, pretty uh, constant statistic. Why do you think it's not working, the messaging for young adults? You know, well, first of all, Jake, I think it's two things. It's, it, it is certainly an issue with younger individuals. You want to concentrate on individuals between the ages of 18 and 26. But also, unfortunately, in some states, when you look at the totality of the population, they're well below where they need them to be. You know, there are four states that are below 50 percent. And there are some that are between 50 and 70 percent. So it's a combination of some states and regions 
that are below where we need them to be. And within that context, it's younger people, particularly 18 to 26, where you really want to try and get them to get vaccinated. So you're right about the young people, but it goes beyond the young people in some states and some regions. Research from the Urban Institute released on Monday shows that people who say they will not get vaccinated uh, often rely on social media as a key source for their information about vaccines. Is that of concern to you? Well, in some respects, it's concerned, particularly when disinformation or misinformation gets on social media. I mean, you could counter it within the context of social media. I've been doing something that I never would have imagined in my wildest dreams I was doing would be doing TikTok with people today and in the next couple of days. And it's you surprised at the number of followers, some of these influencers, as we call it, young people that have two, three, four, five, ten million followers. So we've got to go out there and push the envelope out in the media, including the media that's giving misinformation. So you started a TikTok and you're talking to your besties on the TikTok <laughs> there and playing music and all that? I haven't started it, Jake. I got on a TikTok discussion uh, with a bunch of really dynamic young people. So you also said today that the Delta variant is the greatest threat to progress against COVID-19. So if convincing folks to get vaccinated doesn't work, is there any chance that we're going to be able to eliminate this threat? Well, certainly, if you have a substantial proportion of people not vaccinated and you have a variant like the Delta variant, which now clearly has been shown to spread more efficiently and to cause more serious disease. We absolutely know that from other countries. Then those people who are not vaccinated will be at risk and there will be more infections the way we're seeing. And with that will come serious disease and hospitalization. And that's the reason why we're pulling out all the stops, Jake, about getting people, you know, going with a local type of trusted messengers, even in those recalcitrant pockets of people who don't seem to want to get vaccinated. And I just got off a call with the conference of mayors talking about getting people at the local level literally to going knocking on doors in neighborhoods. I did that myself mm -hmm. this past weekend with Mayor Muriel Bowser in D.C., literally going in the Anacostia section, knocking on doors house to house. That's what we've got to do. We've got to do it at the grassroots, at the local level. We're beyond the large, massive vaccine centers. We've got to go local now. Is it fair to say that the people who are still dying of coronavirus or, seri or in serious medical uh, conditions, are they almost entirely, if not entirely, unvaccinated Americans? Yes. Yeah, overwhelmingly so. And that's the thing that's so painful Jake, as a physician, a scientist, and a public health person that I am, is that that's entirely avoidable. And that's really the tragedy. When people don't want to get vaccinated for reasons that they can't even explain, they just don't want to get vaccinated. For those who don't want to get vaccinated because they need more information, it's on us to get that information to them. And that's what we're trying to do. But it's always every death from COVID-19 is avoidable, and it's a tragedy when it happens. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you again.
Thanks, Jake. Good to be with you. One child saying they had to wear the same clothes for 15 days straight. Shocking, heartbreaking stories coming from inside U.S. border facilities. Stay with us. In our National League today, new details about what life is like for migrant children currently stuck in temporary border facilities in the U.S. At last count this past Sunday, the Biden administration reported more than 14,000 children, 14,000, currently in the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services, many of them for 60 days or longer. And we should note the Biden administration has only allowed lawmakers to see the children inside these facilities. The Biden administration continues to deny repeated requests to let journalists into the facilities. Let's bring in CNN reporter Priscilla Alvarez, who covers immigration for us. And Priscilla, uh, you've learned what some of these kids are dealing with. That's right. And the conditions really vary across temporary facilities. But generally what children are reporting is limited time outdoors for recreation, limited access to showers, limited phone access to talk to family, and generally speaking, just limited, just sleeping to pass the time, really. And we learned from these kids through testimonials. And here's what a 17-year-old from El Salvador said. He said, during the day and night, we were told that we had to stay on our beds and could only get up to go to the bathroom and to shower. We had to eat on our beds because there was no other place to eat. He goes on to say, I had to wear the same clothes for 15 days. The staff members told us to wear the same underwear and just turn it inside out because there wasn't any laundry to clean our clothes. We know this because attorneys have been visiting these facilities to assess the conditions as part of an ongoing settlement. And what they really captured, Jake, was just a sense of desperation among children who are waiting to reunite with family in the United States. What does the Biden administration have to say about this? This is deplorable. The Health and Human Services Department oversees these facilities. And what they told us in a statement is that they're working around the clock to improve conditions, to improve services, and that they are reuniting children with family or legal guardian. But attorneys say it's just not happening fast enough. And these facilities are not prepared to hold them for 60 days or longer. All right. Priscilla Alvarez, very important. Keep up uh, and keep reporting for us on this important issue. North Korea says it has bad news for the Biden administration if it plans to restart nuclear talks soon. That's next. In our world lead today, North Korea not quite engaging in saber rattling, more like olive branch trampling. Kim Jong-un's sister, a top-ranking official in her own right, just stomped on hopes for better relations with the U.S. Her comments come only days after her brother said North Korea should be ready for dialogue and confrontation with the U.S. CNN's Will Ripley has been to North Korea 19 times. He joins us from Taiwan. Uh, This past weekend, Will National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that the Biden administration was, quote, awaiting a clear signal from North Korea. Is this it? You know, there's never really a clear signal from North Korea, Jake, as you well know. But when Kim Yo-jong spoke out saying that the U.S. Uh, should not expect much, given that their special North Korea envoy, Sung Kim, is in the region right now, it was certainly an indication that at least at this moment, North Korea is not interested in sitting down with the United States. 
Uh, clearly, ever since President Trump walked out of the uh, summit talks in Hanoi in 2019, uh, North Korea has completely turned away from engagement with the United States. And at the moment, they're also tackling a number of issues at home, including JK's self-proclaimed food crisis that many observers fear may be the worst that North Korea has faced since the famine of the late 1990s. So Kim Jong-un has a lot on his hands, talking with the U.S. not high on his list right now. How do escalating tensions between the U.S. and China over issues such as Taiwan, how does that factor into any possibility of talks with North Korea? China's role is perhaps more crucial now than it was even during the Trump administration, Jake, because of the fact that North Korea is pinning its hopes on somehow resuming uh, trade, cross-border trade with China to get food into the country. Uh, North Korean policy has completely shifted towards Beijing right now, but given that the U.S. and uh, China are really uh, locked in a series of escalations, you had the uh, guided missile destroyer, the USS Curtis Wilbur, crossing the Taiwan Strait just yesterday. This comes just days after China's largest ever uh, recorded air incursion, 28 planes flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. So if President Biden wants to work with President Xi on issues like North Korea, they have a lot of other things that are higher up on their list as well. And you have North Korea more isolated than perhaps it's been in decades because most foreign diplomats and aid workers have been forced to leave the country because of the COVID-19 border shutdown. And really, they're running out of everything in North Korea, from food to medical supplies. It's a dire situation and not many international eyes on the ground in Pyongyang and the rural areas of North Korea right now, Jake. All right, Will Ripley, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The key Senate vote on election reform expected in the next hour as some frustrated progressive Democrats point their finger at President Biden. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.